In this second part of a two-part episode, Mr. Jack Wright bears his corazón and details how his counseling success began with respect for students and their families. Jack tells of his students, many who are educators, professionals, elected and appointed public servants, as well as highly recognized individuals. He explains the vision that established the Franklin Educational Foundation and what he sees for its future to influence opportunities and support students with promise. As a leader and mentor, Jack built bridges with his colleagues at LAUSD and with the Western Association of College Admissions Counselors. Regardless of race, ethnicity, class, or immigrant status, Mr. Wright helped open doors for students who otherwise would not have had the chance. He reminds us of the importance of the values like hard work, honesty, fortitude, and working for what you deserve. Years later, his former students expressed their appreciation for his guidance in the form of heartfelt thank you letters and significant financial support for the Franklin Educational Foundation. After hearing this episode, Jack might as well be known as Mr. Wright, High School Counselor of the Universe. We hope you enjoy this episode. Esperamos que este sea de su agrado. You arrived at Franklin. What was your inspiration? What motivated you to say, I'm going to do as much as I can to help as many of these students have the opportunity to go to college? Well, I'm a bit competitive. And we had 49 high schools in the district. And I always wanted to be able to say, this is what is happening at Franklin. Look at the data. Look at the statistics. Look at what our kids are doing at Franklin. Because at that time, Franklin was, quote, an inner city, minority, low-income school. How could we possibly compete with Taft High School and Canoga Park and those affluent communities that and Eagle Rock was a perception of being better than Franklin in those days. So anyway, I, I just being competitive, I wanted to be able to begin to create a reputation for the school that would be understood by colleges and universities throughout the nation, that Franklin is a good place for them to come and recruit highly qualified determined students. There was a 1992 LA Times article written about you and the person that wrote this article referred to you as a Clint Eastwood type character, (laughs) called you a good guy gunslinger on admissions issues. For example, if UCLA is doing something that you didn't agree with, people would say like, I'm going to get Jack Wright to go after you. Um, (laughs) There was something about uh, even back then that you were going to fight for these kids. Can you talk a little bit about your act about that? I've always been one for keeping records and statistics. For example, I don't know if you can see, but here is a record of every kid, every class name by name of the scholarships they received and the college that they attended and the summary 
this went to the faculty at the end of the year, so they would understand why I was always summing the, the kids oh, out of yes. They I had teachers who didn't like it. Because, oh, there, what the hell, Jack Wright, here's another summon. <laughs> yes. So for the people, our listeners won't be able to see what you're holding, but I would say that is a file, a well-worn Like an inch and a half thick. About, yeah, well, probably. Each one had a summary, you see. It was addressed to Franklin faculty from me, so they could better understand why I took such an enormous part out of their life in the classroom. There were some teachers I'd never summoned a kid from. One was Mr. Pallas for chemistry. And it's obvious why. If you're in chemistry, you don't summon a kid out in the middle of an experiment. Yeah. But the summary here says that the 9092 senior class continued the Franklin tradition of obtaining more scholars, obtaining more scholarships and grants than any previous class. Of these grants and scholarships, those that are renewable for the next four years of college will equal a total of $5,156,560. Thank you for your interest and support. The first interview that lots and lots of kids had, like salary members, was very essential to changing the perception of the individual student as to what is possible and what I would like to expect them to do. How did you see your role as a counselor? Why, why be so passionate about fighting for your kids to have the opportunity to go to college? Well, it was very simple. Uh, Mark Jenner, who recently passed away, our beloved principal for 17 years. In 1971, after graduation, I was in my office cleaning up stuff, and he walked in and he said, Jack, I have a new job for you next year. It's going to be pretty easy. I only want you to do two things. I want you to send everybody to the college, and I want you to have enough money in their pocket that they can afford to go. That's it. Plain and simple. Two easy, things. Easy. Easy job. Easy job. So at that time, there were maybe five high schools in the district that had an off-the-norm position called a college counselor. There was Roosevelt and uh, Washington Prep, uh, Franklin, Lincoln, and Garfield. So the five of us <clears throat> all knew that we were in a position to create a program that could be expanded and implemented at all the high schools. <clears throat> the five of us being a nucleus going downtown and meeting with each other with Bill Ashton, who became our coordinator, and then getting meetings of support from Sid Thompson, the assistant superintendent, who began to understand the value of what we were doing and his vision about the district. Eventually, we formed a school district of all 49 high schools having a position off the norm called a college counselor. I became one of those people that accepted the responsibility of training all the new counselors in the summer before school started. And back those days, would you believe we had to calculate every person's GPA with a GPA card, how many A's, how many B's in pencil, and use a calculator to calculate your GPAs, and then to type up the roster and the list and the rank. We only had typewriters and adding machines. 
because that all had to be done before the first day of school. So you knew your target to begin to talk about realistic choices of where you should be applying to college and one place for sure. And then let's have a dream about these other colleges above that sure thing to see if we could open the door to other colleges that are private and so on. And, and so I became sort of a central figure of being in charge of counseling all the other counselors in the district. We became part of the Western Association of College Admissions Counselors, WACAC it's called. And this was to bring us closer together with the admission staff of all the colleges, public and private, in California and Hawaii. WACAC became very important in my life to help me advance professionally because eventually I was the elected president of all the people in the state, Northern California and Southern California, where we'd bring together the secondary and the post-secondary people in admissions and financial aid for meaningful workshops and dialogue to talk about the issues of financial aid and the difficulty of students knowing how to even read an award letter to understand the how much of it is grant? How much of it is loans and that sort of thing? How, what does work study mean? How many hours a week do I work? How much do I get paid per hour? That's never in your award letter. Right. You said work study. And so these were issues that we became very focused on in order to bring about a more friendly, more supportive transition of all kids in LA Unified to move on to the secondary. And then as president of this organization, I had obligation of going to the national conferences. And these were held in major cities all over the nation. Well, I would go there with not only representing WACAC, but I would go there with my agenda to present workshops that were relevant to talking about the issues of diversity, talking about the issues of access, talking about the issues of dialogue between the admissions officer who walks into a school with expectations or lack of expectations of who he's about to see, who he's about to talk to. Uh, some, many of the Eastern colleges would have some alumni who lived in Los Angeles represent that college in your high school. Not somebody from the campus, but an alumni. Tokenism at best, rather than having somebody from the college knock on your door and walk in, hoping that he would be able to see the appropriate students. And I remember, Mr. Wright, when, when we went and had our college fair, Dean Montoya from Stanford came, and, and I was part of the first class that he admitted uh, to Stanford. Right. I'd known him many years. And we had supported each other in office at WACA. And he formerly was at Occidental for a number of years. I used to go over to Oxy on Saturday to help him administer the SAT. And so we had a lot of respect for each other. And so his and first again, there's that there's that example of relationships. Right. right? You build that relationship. You, exactly. You're building those bridges. Even, uh, even with your peers. So, Jack, can you talk a little bit about the book that they compiled um, when they asked counselors across the nation to write about what aspect of counseling they were passionate about. And I'm curious as to what you 
yourself chose to write about? Yeah, well, I, my, my topic had to do with counseling students in the inner city minority community. And my whole chapter laid it out step by step and what I did and why I did it and, and sharing the results uh, that was meant to be a sort of a Bible for people uh, to read and think about, to emulate parts of it that would be appropriate for their own schools nationwide, not just California or Highland Park, but nationwide. And so I was honored to be asked to be one of some 35 authors. And each of us wrote a chapter that had something to do with what we specialized in. I spent a lot of evenings and weekends and after school hours, I would drive down to Mount St. Mary's College where I would be without any distractions. And so that book benefited me too, because it allowed me to more closely look at what have I done? How do I do it? Why do I do this? Right. Is there another way to have done it better? And so on. So it was an opportunity for me to have introspection about what, what I've been doing and how could it be maybe better. Right. I've got a two-part question here. It focuses around leadership and mentorship. Your colleagues on uh, uh, WACAC who asked you to become president, you're leading them as an organization. Uh, at LA Unified, you are now a leader who's helping set the direction for college counseling at LA Unified. When, you, when folks are in leadership positions, either they have uh, formal leadership training or they develop leadership skills, with respect to leadership skill, what leadership skill did you rely on most or did you develop to make you more effective in guiding those groups? The other part is along the way, you're, you're a pathfinder. Uh, you may not have peers who are doing the same thing, but we all need mentoring. And where did you seek uh, mentoring for yourself or how did you mentor others in this area? Basically, the reason I adapted and changed and upgraded what I would do and how I would make it better every year is I would look at the results of each graduating class and think about how could I have done it better? What do I need to do in order to be uh, more effective? There was a time at Franklin that we had a considerable population of Asian students. Mandarin was our language of their parents. We've always had a significant enrollment of Latinos for which Spanish is a major language. And then we have the Anglos. I always ran evening workshops on the subject of admissions and financial aid for parents. Both I, I did it for the parents of ninth graders at Burbank, Nightingale and Irving. I'd be there in each of those three auditoriums uh, explaining about the importance of curriculum, financial aid packaging, and what they could expect of me if they sent their child to Franklin. At Franklin, I would have my presentation translated from English into Mandarin, and also another teacher was there translating it into Spanish all in the same room. It was a, big, a bit cumbersome, 
but it was my short sentence that was translated immediately into two other languages so that when they walked out, they had such a different perception about who I was and what they could expect of me. It's that respect. You extended a level of respect to these families to say, you're entitled to have this information and I'm respecting you. That, that's, that's tremendous. I, you know, talking about leadership trait, respect for others, I think, is, is key uh, in that regard. Speaking of access and, and a show of respect, I think one of the highest forms of that is advocacy. And you have taken your cause all the way up to the state legislature. And you testified all the way back in 1974 on problems of access and finance for students seeking post-secondary education. You did it again in 91. And you also testified in 1979 before the uh, Assembly Permanent Subcommittee on Post-Secondary Education specifically on on the topic of barriers to college. Can you talk to us about the outcome? Regarding the the topic of access for low-income, disadvantaged students, one of the many workshops that I developed had to do with a girl from Franklin who was often on the verge of homeless moving from apartment to apartment and having a very poor academic record. The best grades were at best a C here and a C there. She had below a 2.0 GPA. And yet in talking and working with Maria, I realized that this was a, a young girl with tremendous, a tremendous amount of promise if somehow I could open the door and advocate for her. And so, you know, I used to load kids up in buses or my old Class C motorhome and take them to visit campuses and so on. That was you you being coach? Yeah, McGillery. Taking your kids to visit college. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you'd like to apply to a campus if you've never seen it. Right. You've never met anybody there. You haven't seen students walking around. You haven't seen the buildings. How are you supposed to know that you would like to be there if you don't physically see it? So anyway, this workshop uh, occurred after Maria, who started in EOPS at Cal State Long Beach with housing and a full financial aid package. I was very good friends with the EOP director there. And uh, after a personal interview with this girl and the EOP director, everything was stabilized for her to go there and enroll as a freshman. Most students at best would have thought, I'll try a junior college. So here's Maria, who for the first time had a stable home life living in a dorm. And the EOP program provided required mentoring and counseling, and evidence of progress and help to buy the books and on and on. So she went there two years and got herself really squared away. And then because of family situations, felt it important to be closer to home. So she transferred everything she had at Long Beach to Cal State LA and continued in the EOP program at Cal State LA and graduated successfully in four years. And then 
after that, she began to think about a career of being a social worker. And for that, she knew that she had to acquire a master's degree and went to USC and obtained her master's. And years later, she was part of the adjunct faculty at USC in the field of social sociology, teaching there after she had become employed by the, the LA County Social Service Department. Well, at this point, she reflected on her life and the opportunities that I had helped create and wrote me this letter that was like four pages long, handwritten from the heart, explaining her path from Franklin to Long Beach to LA to USC. And I read that letter over and over and over. And I began to think the success of this student is emblematic of what should be shared with all the college counselors in California. So I created a series of workshops. And what I did with the workshop is that I would sneak her into the room. Nobody knows she's there. And I would reproduce her high school transcript. And I would reproduce my letter of recommendation I wrote. And everybody, they had to look at the transcript and see the miserable grades and the lack of academic success. And then they had to read my letter and each line they had to put a plus or minus by that line of what they just read. Was it positive or was it negative? At the end of all that, I would ask individuals who represented colleges, USC, would you admitted this student? Does your campus have the support to guarantee her academic success? No, no. And I'd ask UCLA, EOPS, probably not. Then I'd ask Laverne and Pepperdine and all the colleges sitting there in the room, what do they have on their campus to accommodate the need of a disadvantaged student. So this discussion would go on for maybe 45 minutes or an hour. Intense, and people were getting up in front of God and country and defending or denying their institution they represent as being capable or not capable. And then the best part at the last. I could never read her letter out loud without tearing up but I'd have some friend in the audience to read this letter. And by the way, I said, okay, now all of you can open the envelope and then remove the letter that I received from Maria. And at the end of reading that letter, lots of people were sitting there, choked up, tears. And then I would say, wait, wait, the best is yet to come. <clears throat> Maria, will you come down here and stand beside me? Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. I'm tearing up just Yeah. So he had been so sitting there wonderful. all this time, listening to everybody talk about her, knowing how, what I was doing to bring about a new level of sensitivity that could not be achieved any other way in a better way. Mm -hmm. So then the colleges, I said, now here's Maria. She wants you to ask her questions. So who would like to be the first one? And so now 
the people from the universities were sitting there with an opportunity to face to face, have a dialogue and ask questions and try to learn from Maria what yeah. works and what doesn't work. I was going to say, Jack, there again, you understanding the power of the one-to-one -one relationship. That is some powerful stuff. Yeah, we still keep in touch all these years. So that led to the advocacy aspect of your career. Yeah, well, the, the colleges went home from that workshop. And by the way, I repeated that workshop. Rhea and I flew to San Francisco and went up to... Uh, St. Mary's one year at another state conference and repeated mm -hmm. it and I did it at Long Beach and then I went back east to DC I think it was we had a national conference I put on the same workshop without Maria there but her letter was there and so that was one of the major efforts that I made and at this point I'd like to talk to you about another major effort that had to do with financial aid and financial aid letters that colleges and universities were sending out. Well, I had this one girl, Aguilar, family of five girls. She lived off of York Boulevard, oh, Hermanville. That's the community she lived in. She was very, very mature as a 10th grader. I had had the opportunity because of a former counselor at Franklin who went to Beverly Hills and was invited by the uh, prep school where Sal went to uh, the uh, summer program. At Andover? Andover. Well, I, she said, I've been there before. Why don't you invite Jack Wright to go there and experience Andover for a week? Well, what a transition that was. And so they said, now in exchange for bringing you here, Mr. Wright, we would like for you to start sending Franklin students to us for the summer term. Well, here's this girl, Aguilar, who was independent and secure enough that I sent her there for two academic years. She went there for the 11th and 12th grade and graduated from Andover with their diploma. Wow. And then we gave her our Franklin diploma as a token because of, of that relationship that I formed with Andover. I began to do what you experience. And I'd go to these national conferences and other prep schools had heard about Franklin kids and they would come up to me and sit down at the bar and say, hey, Mr. Wright, is there any way we could get some Franklin kids to come to our prep school in the summer? And that began to spread that everybody wanted Franklin kids. I had kids going to many, many prep schools and universities so, of your class in the summer. That included, uh, you know, uh, Michigan State, uh, I'd have 20 some kids at Santa Barbara. I'd have seven or eight at Oxy. I would have uh, Santa Barbara even would take my undocumented kids for that summer term mm -hmm. back before anybody would admit that they were undocumented. Right. So I was able to, through this summer program, get you kids more prepared to be impressive when you wrote your essay when you had your interview, 
when the rep would come into the Franklin conference room, I'd have you all sitting there before he could say much about his college. I'd say, could you give us a few minutes? I want each of you at the table to introduce yourself. Oh yeah. What you did last summer. So that guy, that lady from the college is sitting there listening to each of you give a two, three minute description. They were blown away. What do we have at Franklin? My you God. were you were so strategic. Now now that I reflect on that, that that's right. You just put that picture in my mind, and I remember sharing. Um, I spent the ten weeks at Andover. This is what we did there. We went and visited other universities. I got to see uh, Brown. I got to see Dartmouth. Um, I saw Harvard. And so, for these competitive recruiters who are coming in, they're going. This kid's already seen Brown. I want to recruit him to my school, right? So yeah. I, I didn't even think about it from that strategic standpoint, but how purposeful. Yeah. And all started with you taking the PSAT in the 10th grade as a practice. Yeah. And then the 11th grade. And then I got somebody to donate the money for that young student to come on Saturdays and do SAT workshops for six weeks on right. Saturday before you took the SAT. And, and I remember there were no school buses on the weekend. So I had to take uh, the rough, tough and dirty back then, the, you know, RTD right. yeah. uh, to, to go from, right. from South LA, the 16 miles to go to Highland Park and then take, take the RTD back. Oh my good goodness. RTD. What the good old RTD before it was MTA. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I never had or have taken the SAT. I can imagine the stress that, laying in bed the night before trying to turn it off so you could go to sleep but being nervous about revealing something about your intellect saturday morning so by taking the psat twice and the sat often twice what did we do reduce the anxiety and along with the reduction of anxiety the scores go higher at some point today, ask Sal what he remembers about a map on the wall at the college office with... He's told me. Yes. It is burned into his conscience. See, there was a reason for that. Not only for the student to show his success of being admitted, but when the 10th and 11th graders would walk in and look at that map, they could relate to that student and see where they have gone to college, and then they could say, well, why not me? Right. So that map had a, a very definite purpose of motivating students as to what should be. And Mr. Wright, you know, when you were talking about the badges that you and your uh, teachers put together at Nightingale, the equivalent to that was this map. Uh, we we were able to put in push pins when we got accepted, right? And you our name and our names were on there, and there was a string from our name to where we not only were accepted but where we we were attending. Yeah. And that was a great sense of pride. As as seniors, we looked forward to that day of putting our name to that push pin. Right. You would pull out those red pins, and one of them would put a green pin in, which green meant go. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned that uh, you had some kids who were undocumented who went to Santa Barbara. Yeah. And, and so my question to you is, how many 
kids do you think you could have served but for their immigrant status that didn't allow them to seek opportunities? Yeah, well, I know there were a lot and they remained silent for the most part, but... And so what, what's your view on, on DACA, the, the, oh. the DACA students? Yeah, well, uh, I don't want to talk politics right now, but it's a major issue that could set us back 30 years if Trump has his way. But we'll see what it is. But I wanted to let you know that because of my rapport with many colleges, private universities who had lots of money, I could enroll my undocumented students in their college with full financial aid and housing, money for books. One of them became Franklin's high school principal. Wow. Another one who was Asian, undocumented, became homeless and lived on and off with Connie and me in this house for seven, eight years while she attended Occidental. I sent her to Santa Barbara for the junior summer program. They knew I took her in the car and drove her to Santa Barbara and had a conference with the director of admissions at UC Santa Barbara about this girl. And they were able to say, we'll make it work. And so here she was with 20 other kids from Franklin attending a summer session at UC Santa Barbara, undocumented. She went to Oxy and then, thank God, to the reform bill of 1986, the immigration reform. Right. She was able to step forward, as many of my students were, and become holders of green cards and eventually citizens today. And so one of the students graduated at Berkeley and became an engineer and worked for Apple for a long time. Whenever I'd call him up, ask him about, can I get a new battery for this old computer? He'd say, well, <laughs> what do you really need, Mr. Wright? I said, well, I need a new battery for this old laptop. He said, no, Mr. Wright, what do you really need? says, I'm going to send you a brand new Apple laptop, wow. the one we're using today. And so, Mr. Wright, I yeah. still remember you had your little Macintosh 2C where you uh, would write, where you would type up, sit there and type, but the screen was like six by eight. And I remember right. you crouched over typing our letters of, of reference and recommendations. Yeah. We're going to talk about the Educational Foundation. You set up the educational, uh, Franklin Educational Foundation. And right. this was shortly after you retired as, as a counselor. I left to go to Santa Monica College. But leading up to this, you had managed to seek donors to provide scholarships. I, I was a recipient of some of these scholarships, but you had vision. Your vision was to set up a foundation, an endowment for scholarships. Tell us how you came about creating that idea how you formed this foundation, what your initial goal was, and where you are today. Yeah, well, somehow I understood a little bit about something called nonprofit and a foundation where people could donate and deduct it from their taxes. And so I had a conversation with Mort Tenner. This was after I had left Franklin and after Mort had left Franklin to go downtown to be an administrator. And I told him a little bit about what I was thinking about and, and asked if he could support 
the effort and he agreed. And so we invited maybe 10, 12 alumni to have dinner with us. And at one point we were in a, in a private room. I explained to everybody my vision of wanting to create a nonprofit for the purpose of raising scholarships for students from Franklin. And they all agreed. And one of the members that night was Rocky Delgadillo. Does that name ring a bell? Rocky? Yes, yes. Yeah, he had. Former, for, former city attorney for the city of Los yeah, Angeles. He had graduated from Harvard and got his law degree from New York University and then became uh, the LA city attorney. Do you happen to know who his college counselor was? <laughs> I, I vaguely remember, yes. But uh, anyway, he was working for one of the largest law firms in Los Angeles, at least. And they agreed to do the incorporation paperwork at pro bono. And so at that point in July of 1993, 12 of us, 13 maybe, had a meeting at Franklin in the conference room to come and sign the documents as board members. So at that point, and from that day forward, always raising money. So what was around. your goal? What, what, what was the foundation yeah, looking to, to do? Didn't really know what was possible. Maybe, maybe 10,000 or something. But when we got to $5,000, we all celebrated by going to Little Joe's restaurant down in Chinatown to smile and laugh and congratulate each other for raising $5,000. And then we started to do more and more. And, and you know, uh, I ran a fundraiser at Santa Anita for over 50 years in the picnic area. So it was an alumni opportunity to get together and to have raffles and silent auctions and to uh, buy tickets for a 50-50 and to eat good Mexican food that was prepared by the Ramirez the Senior Fish Company restaurant. Uh, also former students of mine. And uh, so little by little, we uh, acquired a million dollars. And uh, we thought, holy cow, wow. how did this happen? Because we were, at first we were giving away all the money we acquired every year. And then the perception after forming the foundation was, let's start building the capital of the fund and investing it and eventually we had 1.5 million and uh, 2 million and so on. And then we had the good fortune of having a broker, Mike, who went to Eagle Rock, but we liked him anyway. And he would come to our meetings, and still does today. And he also writes his own checks and donates to the foundation and he refunds all his commissions. Wow. He is as much a part of our, our foundation as anyone and more significant in terms of what we're doing financially today that he is just so focused and dedicated to the success of this foundation that we, uh, this year we have provided $198,000. And that's interest alone, right? We, own, we earned 203000 in interest. So we held back a little because of the 
situation that's going on in the country economically. So the minimum awards used to be $50, $100, $150, dollars Now, today, the minimums are $900. Wow. The maximum is $1,600, except for the top three kids who score the highest in the application process, which is 40% academic, uh, 40% uh, leadership, and 20% on unmet need. So the top six kids get interviewed by the foundation committee. And then we individually vote on the top three to receive something that was formed by one of our board members called the Tenor Wright Scholarship. And these three students aren't aware of their winning status until the night of the awards program. And so the other three are called runners up and they get $1,600 each year for two years for $3,200. The three top kids who get the Tenor Wright scholarships each receive $9,600 over a four-year duration. And so we don't call it a scholarship. None of the kids at Franklin from the foundation ever, never receive a scholarship. The money they receive is called this. It's called a lifetime, no interest loan, repayable at a point of conscience. I know that I have to be patient that all these thousands of kids who have received this money, first thing they do is finish college and then they're faced with what? Paying off the damn student loans. Then they fall in love and get married and then have children. Do they have money yet? No, they're raising their kids. Then their kids have to go to college. Do they have discretionary money? No. And believe me, I get calls a lot from Franklin kids who graduated way back who are asking me for help with their kids today, you know, <laughs> 20 years later. They're saying, what should we do? I know that I have to be patient for them to help their own children go to college before they have anything left that I call discretionary income. I have to wait 40 years before I would expect them to be in a position to pay it back. I was honored when you came to me recently to ask if I could serve on your board and yes, wholeheartedly, uh, I do want to do that. I, I have long-term vision for the foundation and one of them is the realization that people come and get old and pass, and that you'll be 20 years younger than Robert Nishinaka, who is the one of the founding fathers. Uh, he went to Stanford. He uh, went to uh, USC Law School, and he spent his entire career working for the Los Angeles uh, City Attorney's Office. And you, were you his counselor? Yes, I was. It's all your fault, you see? It's all my fault, yeah. And I can tell you a couple of great experiences I had. One of the girls in the class of 86 who was homeless, but she was fortunate enough to be living with a girlfriend whose father was a lawyer in Mount Washington. She uh, was invisible. She was from Thailand. She was working two 
night jobs in Thai restaurants. And so she would leave school, get on a bus, go to the restaurant and work till 10, 11 o'clock and take the last bus the city ran that night back home, go to bed, completely exhausted, not able to keep up with her homework, not able to show her academic potential. And one of the students at Franklin came to my office and poked his head in my door and said, Mr. Wright, have you ever talked to a girl whose name was Pontip Nahirakhanuk? I couldn't pronounce her name back then. I said, no, who is she? Well, she's, she's a senior. She's about to graduate in six weeks from Franklin. You need to talk to her, Mr. Wright. So I went and got her cum to look at her record to see what she did at Irving Junior High, where she had A's and B's and held student body office. Leadership was exhibited. And then I looked at her record at Franklin High School of D's and F's and repeating algebra and on and on. And so I also saw in her cum that she was tested with a Binet IQ test, qualified as state gifted. IQ of 145 and higher, 160. So I called her out of class and she walked in my office and we had a conversation. Six weeks of school left, what can I do? Well, I was able to choose her to have one of the two scholarships from the Los Angeles Times Mirror Magazine newspaper for $1,000. And I was able to, at the last minute, get her into PCC I was able to get her a Pell Grant because there was no early deadline on that. The Cal Grant deadline had passed. So I was able to begin to turn her life around and had the financial support to get her the PCC where she enrolled and began to do better. And then I didn't hear from her for a while. So I come home, I turned on my TV and started flipping channels to try to condition my brain to go to bed flipping channels, and here's the Miss Universe contest. Well, what guy in his right mind wouldn't stop and look at that? <laughs> and they were down to the last six candidates. They were introducing them, and they say, and this is the young lady, Pontip Nahirankanak, representing Thailand. I said, how could this be? I got this far away from the TV, trying to make sure I'd recognize this girl. Sure is the devil this was my girl Aww. in the top six of the Miss Universe contest wow and became Miss Universe wow mm. she had a history with Franklin of being on stage at the award program at night where she was presented one of the two times LA Times scholarships two years later she was back on stage wearing her Terrera her sash Miss Universe presenting the Los Angeles Times Scholarship. Everybody knew she was going to be there that night. The whole program was interrupted by people with their cameras coming up to the stage and on and on. I finally got it back together where I could finish the program that night. But she had a two-year obligation of helping with the Miss Universe pageant every year. But she was the one that was part of the MC and all that. Right. But she was able to accumulate endorsements of many cosmetics and fashion things of one nature or another and become a very wealthy woman. 
Well, there come a time two and a half years later that my phone rang and she says, Mr. Wright, I'm ready to go back to college. Can you help me? This was in the spring and I said, oh, on tip. The Cal Grant deadline has already passed. She says, Mr. Wright, I don't need financial aid anymore. Wow. I live in a beach house. What would you think if I enrolled at Pepperdine University? So she did. And she went there for both her bachelor's degree and a master's degree. What a story. And invited me at graduation at Pepperdine to be her guest of honor. Wow. Do you And you still keep in touch with her? Oh, yeah. One she, phone call. You know, even at the height of her career, still trusted you. Right. Anyway, one day the phone rings and Pontet says, Jack, can we have lunch? Yeah. At some point during the lunch, she reached across the table and put her hand on mine and said, Jack, I want to challenge you. If you'll raise $100,000, I will match it. Wow. And I know you can do it, so go to work. Well, it took me a little over two years. When we had her come to Franklin, the principal, Regina, who also knew Farntip because they went to Irving a year apart, called a joint meeting of all the senior class officers and the student body with Farntip as the guest to tell her story about her life as an incentive to others to understand what can happen when you don't give up. And she told her story and everybody was focused on what she was saying. And at the end of her story, and she says, and I am here today to honor the man who made this possible. And turned and handed me her check in front of all the kids for $100,000. Wow. Wow. I thought, okay, now I can have my life back. <laughs> yeah. Two weeks later, I get a phone call from a boy who I'd sent to Harvard, Dennis Wong who did well and become an entrepreneurial, kind of an independent, wealthy guy. He, he and Bonner of the LA Clippers were roommates at Harvard. Okay. And today, Dennis and Bomber are both owners of the Clippers. Yeah. And so Dennis calls me up and he says, hey, Jack, how you doing? Dennis was a kid that I put on an airplane one time and flew him and five others back to the East Coast to visit colleges. Well, Dennis, he says, hey, Jack, when's it going to be my turn? I says, what do you mean, Dennis? He says, well, I'd love to write you a check for $100,000. Can you raise another 100000 I said, oh, Dennis. <sighs> okay, I'll try. He says, no deadline, just let me know, and I'll be there with my checkbook. So again, it took me two more years to raise another 100000 That was a year that one of my fundraisers was to honor Mort Tenner mm -hmm. at Santa Anita and so on. So I had a lot of people writing big checks to raise that 100000 And then the night of the awards program at Franklin that year, Dennis was there with his sister, two sisters, and at one point, where I told the story that you've just heard and thanked Dennis for his support and gave him the mic. 
And so Dennis told his story about why he did it, why he was there that night. And he said, and here I am to honor the man who changed my life. <laughs> and in front of the audience in the auditorium, handed me that check. And simultaneously, the students walked out with the big poster of $100,000 signed by Dennis Wong in front of the auditorium full of the seniors and the parents. I know they will never forget that night. And some of the kids someday might want to emulate what Dennis did because of their experience that night of receiving their lifetime, no interest loan. Wow, excuse me for going on, but uh, I'm ready for the next fundraiser challenge. <laughs> Let it come. You never uh, know who's listening. You never uh, know. Jack, you understand so well the issue of securing critical funding resources, not just to get to college, but to get through college. And I'm curious as to what do you make of the recent college admissions bribery scandal where people with a whole oh. lot of money have cheated their way into college? This is evidence of what I see throughout the whole country in the affluent communities is the encroachment of the entitlement mentality. I don't have to work for it, give it to me. I, do, I need an A. I got a B, but I deserve an A because I want to go to this prestigious college. And then these people with all the money bribing their child's way into a university that will be a detriment to their life for their whole life. But this entitlement mentality is becoming such a major part of our society. People are forgetting the values of hard work and honesty, fortitude, of working to earn what you get. Instead, they're saying, I deserve it, so give it to me. I worry about the political climate supporting that mentality today. I support the affluent people feel, feeling entitled to all the special privileges and to hell with the undocumented, to hell with the poor, to hell with the non-Anglo population. What we're doing is best for the country, and that is give us all the opportunity. We don't need to earn it. We're entitled to have it. Bad news. Bad news because it, it um, certainly makes me reflect on my own college education and and i had to work hard i uh, was fortunate to have qualified for scholarships to attend uh, stanford university and even getting in i wasn't so certain myself that i would uh, be successful and i knew it would take a lot of hard work and uh, it's a different kind of sweat mr wright <laughs> you know you don't smell the brain sweat, but it does, it does take uh, work to earn that degree. Yeah, it's bad news for, for everyone. So Mr. Wright, it's been fantastic uh, to have this conversation with you today. Again, I, I just realized I've only known you at a surface level. The stories you've shared, the students you've influenced, just your emotion and your way that you cherish the relationships you've built and how they've honored you for all you've done. It, it truly shows. I know in preparing for our interview, we did meet with you 
and there was something you said that stuck out to me. And when we asked, why, why do you do this, Mr. Wright? And I thought you were going to say it, but you haven't said it. And it comes down to one word, corazón. And you said it was corazón. And there is no doubt in my mind that that is what has driven you uh, to support all kids, regardless of race, ethnicity, class, affluence. If there's a kid who wants to learn, you're going to be there to help them. If there's an obstacle, a wall in front of them, you're going to knock it down for that we are so privileged to be able to share your story. Before we leave, we have uh, 50 seconds. We're gonna spend 50 seconds asking you some really fun questions, real quick answers. So okay. you, let, you let me know when you're ready to go. Okay, I'm ready. All right. All right. What's your favorite Mexican food? Uh, enchiladas. Who's your favorite musician? Oh. Hmm. I listen to the old crooners like uh, Bing Crosby. Your idea of the perfect morning is? Oh, going out and having a nice breakfast. What's your favorite book? Well, I, I can't give you an answer for that. Okay, what's your favorite dessert? Uh, ice cream and... Coconut pie. All right, we got it under 50 seconds. There you go. All right. All right, Mr. Wright. You're right. I wish I had had you as my counselor. I don't even recall who my counselor was because I didn't even know what the function of the high school counselor was when I was back in high school. And uh, I was very lucky to be able to rely on my older sister who did have an amazing high school counselor. Oh, I'd just like to thank you for giving us of your time and giving of, of yourself today, but also you've been giving of, of yourself your entire life. So you're an amazing, amazing bridge builder. I wanna thank you from the bottom of my heart. Your story is not just your story, but it's part of my story. I know that you continue your work and your effort with the Educational Foundation. And for all of the future kids of Highland Park attending Franklin High School, we will forever be in your debt. There are people in, in the audience that know that they owe, that they have a, a debt of gratitude with you and that hopefully will be able to reach out because they've heard your, your story. Uh, thank you, it's been such a delight. Yeah, so well, again, Mr. Wright, un abrazo, a uh, big hug for me. Thank you so much. Okay. Um, and I love you. Well, love you too, Sal. Gracias por escuchar part two of Mr. Jack Wright's episode. Be sure to listen to part one, where we meet Jack as a young Kansas farm boy and learn of his journey to teaching and counseling in Los Angeles. In the 1960s, as an aspiring teacher and counselor, he shares how the social equity issues of the day forged his approach to counseling and serving a diverse student population with respect. Cincuenta has commissioned a Loteria-inspired card depicting Mr. Wright, supporting the iconic Franklin High School bridge titled El Bridge Builder. Resident artist Aaron Silva delivers an image that evokes Mr. Wright's days of building bridges in Kansas and memorializes his work to support former, current, 
and future Franklin Panthers. Follow us on Instagram at 50 underscore podcast to view Mr. Wright's memorable Loteria-inspired card. Mil gracias to our team, including Javier Solis and Aaron Silva, our prior guests, our hashtag 50 listeners, as well as our countless friends and family members who have encouraged us, sacrificed time with, and for us to see us through this journey. Follow us on Instagram at 50 underscore podcast and on Twitter at 50 underscore pod for updates on our releases. Email us your thoughts and comments about an episode or future guests at info at 50 podcast.com. Please subscribe and follow us on your favorite streaming platform. Don't forget to rate and review us. Gracias por escucharnos aquí en 50. Thank you for listening to us here at 50.